but our perceptual experiences in a, in a very important conceptual sense come from within. They come from the inside out and they're controlled by sensory signals. So I like to think of sensory signals as some sort of like reins, you know, they're, they're keeping our perceptions tied to, to reality going in a certain direction. And importantly, this doesn't necessarily mean they're the most accurate depiction of the world. You know, evolution didn't design our perceptual systems to maximize the amount of accurate information that we perceive about environment. They designed our perceptual systems to perceive the world in the, the most useful way to help us survive and reproduce. Um, so there are indirect relations between what we perceive and what's there. Even though it seems like what we perceive really is what's there, it is indirect. So that's why I use the term controlled hallucination, which I first heard from Chris Frith, a British psychologist. But what often gets left out is the control is just as important as the hallucination here. If you lose the control, then you have what we normally think of as hallucination. People will see and hear things that other people don't, that really have no relation to what's out there in the world. And the hallucination is just to emphasize that we never see things as they are. They are an active construction, a creative active interpretation. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mangan, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Today, we're excited and delighted to have with us one of the world's leading researchers in neuroscience, Anil Seth. Anil is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex in the UK and founding co-director of the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science. He has published over 100 scientific papers and book chapters and is the editor-in-chief of the journal Neuroscience of Consciousness. His TED Talk on consciousness and controlled hallucination has been viewed over 12 million times and stands as one of TED's most popular science talks of all time. Today, we'll dig deep into what our friend Cal Fussman would call the big questions of neuroscience. Is my reality the same as yours? What does it mean to be you? Why did we evolve to have consciousness? Are different states of consciousness, such as we see in comas, sleep, and general anesthesia, measurable and clearly definable? What's actually going on there? What is consciousness and where in the brain can we find it? Why does a brain adapted to basic hunter-gatherer survival also include the capacity to compose symphonies, write philosophy, debug software code, go to the moon, and ponder these kinds of questions about the nature of our own existence? Will we ever be able to deconstruct the basic elements of consciousness and reconstruct them in a computer AI? As you'll soon hear in pursuing the answers to these questions, the questions we ask really matter. As it turns out, many of the questions we commonly ask about the brain, consciousness, and the nature of our own reality may not even be the right questions to ask. This episode was a lot of fun. It will probably go down as one of my personal favorites. With that said, exploring our current understanding of the brain, consciousness, and the fundamental reality of who we are and how we experience the world around us is just not something you're going to cover in one hour. That's why I can't recommend to you enough to check out Anil's new book, which we'll be discussing today, Being You, The New Science of Consciousness. With that said, let's get started. Tell us, you, you talked about this a little bit in your book, what is the difference between being under general anesthesia and being fully conscious, the three of us talking right now, 
what what's happening there? What do we know about it? I think there's all the difference in the world there. There's even all the difference in the world between general anesthesia and and falling asleep. They're, they're really not the same thing. And my own experiences or non-experiences, if you like, of, of anesthesia were really profound in shaping my thinking about, about consciousness. Because when you go under general anesthesia, for those of you who have, it's complete oblivion. It's not that you just fall asleep for a while and then wake up. You are gone and then you're back. And there's the experience of consciousness dissolving into blackness. Very hard to hang on to, you know, when you count backwards from 10 or whatever the anesthesiologist asks you to do. And then the next moment, you're in the recovery room. And it could have been five minutes you were under, but it could have been five hours or 50 years. You'd have no way of knowing. And that's very different from falling asleep where you might be disoriented and you might not remember things or remember your dreams. You might well have been unconscious for some of it, but you still have a reasonable idea of how much time has gone by. You're not going to mistake an hour for a year. So consciousness really does go away completely in general anesthesia when it's deep enough. And for me, this was an incredibly profound moment because it's sort of the closest I think you can get to understanding that consciousness really does depend, or the consciousness that we have does depend intimately on the brain being in a particular kind of state. And it's the closest to the oblivion that will have preceded our birth and that will follow uh, when we die. And you can think about that from all sorts of perspectives. I found it quite spiritually reassuring, actually. But in terms of the neuroscience, in terms of what's happening in the brain, there's much that is known. There's still a lot that, that isn't known. And the, there are many different kinds of anesthetics. There's propofol, there's midazolam, there's, there's the so-called dissociative anesthetics like ketamine, which don't necessarily fully abolish your experience, but change your relationship to your experience, which is interesting for, for other reasons. Um, people are still trying to figure out what's this, what, what are the common factors? Why do these different substances work? How do they succeed in turning consciousness off? And I think you can look for that answer at different levels. You can try and look for it at a very low level. Like what are the molecular mechanisms by which anesthetic compounds affect the brain? For me, the, perhaps the more interesting level is how anesthetics change global patterns of activity in a brain that makes sense in terms of consciousness appearing and disappearing and one thing that's becoming very clear is that all general anesthetics disrupt communication between brain regions in specific ways they they really tamp down or, or even abolish long-range information flow between regions of the cortex in you know and disrupt the patterns that normal everyday conscious states depend on now that's still a very vague statement and i think there's a lot more to be learned about precisely what are the important disruptions that matter for the loss of consciousness but at least it's a start and there are there are ways to quantify this disruption that can give proxy measures for depth of anesthesia we can start to get a handle on how much activity is disrupted and what that means for possible changes in the level of consciousness of somebody yeah you know i remember when i first started in the medical device industry um i was younger i didn't know much about any of this. And I can remember being in the operating room early on and they had, you mentioned this in your book, uh, bispectral index monitors, BIS monitors. And I, just to me, the most terrifying thing I could imagine was being awake and alert during surgery, but be paralyzed. 
to your feeling, everything is being done to you and not even being able to tell anybody about it. Um, and the thing would just keep beeping on and on and on. And often the anesthesiologist would just turn it off, ignore it. And I would think, what is going on here? <laughs> how, can, how can this be? And then slowly over time, I noticed they weren't being turned on at all. And now I rarely see them at all anymore. And it was an attempt to try to do what you're saying. Can we measure levels of consciousness? And this is something you talked about in the book. And that may not even be the right question. But obviously, it's a question we ask because it has a very practical application. Are we doing harm to this person when we're trying to help them? How do you think about that problem? And how, how have we attempted to measure this so far? And where are we? There are two different ways to think about what measuring consciousness means and, and the value of trying to do it. There's a, a sort of a more philosophical uh, question about, is this the right way to understand the phenomenon of consciousness? Is it something that can be measured in the same way that something like temperature can be measured? And then there's also the, the practical questions, which I think you rightly highlight. Can we reliably track somebody's, in, in, in quotes, level of consciousness on an operating theater table or in some other neurological conditions or, or even during sleep? And, th and that's, that's, I think, a very, very important question because the, the nightmare that you describe really is a nightmare. And of course, it, it has been known to happen, not, not frequently, but more than zero is pretty terrifying when it's something like that. Um, the, the biz monitor that you talked about, it's interesting. I didn't know, I, I not an anesthesia, I've not spent much time in operating theater. So it's what you say is fascinating about how it's being treated. And I guess that speaks to the fact that it's not really trusted uh, by surgeons. And I think part of that is because it's a little bit ad hoc. And what's important is to have a measure of conscious level that is based on some actual sort of deep theoretical principle about the sufficient uh, conditions for consciousness so the bispectral monitors are very loosely they, they look at the i mean all all consciousness monitors tend to work by analyzing electrical brain activity in some way based on the eeg signal from a few electrodes that you might have and there are some broad signatures that tend to go along with, with loss of consciousness. Like you see changes in frequency ranges, you see changes in the spatial distribution of activity in particular frequencies. Um, but there are now a lot of other signatures of conscious level, which could be used to practically guide um, in decisions about inform people about okay what's the level of consciousness happening now i don't think they're all that practical yet for for routine monitoring uses in, in operating theaters i think the, the the way of measuring consciousness that's gotten the most attention i think is the most exciting uses a technique called tms together with eeg and tms is transcranial magnetic stimulation basically involves a magnetic coil which injects a very short very sharp pulse of energy into the into the brain you just hold it to the surface uh, of the head and then you use EEG to listen to the response to that pulse of energy it's a little bit like throwing a stone into a pool of water and then watching the ripples um, and it turns out that the uh degree of complexity of these brain ripples the brain response to the pulse is a very very good indicator of, of conscious level uh, and so what you do is if it, a brain that is in an unconscious state basically there's 
there is still a response, but it, it is like throwing a, a stone into a pool of still water. The ripples just go out from one place and fade out eventually. And um, for a conscious brain, it's like throwing a stone into a, into a, I don't know, a pond with lots of ripples and waves and already there. So it's a much more complicated pattern of response. And you can quantify that. You can put a number to it. It's called the perturbation complexity index developed by Marcello Massimini and Giulio Tononi and colleagues. And it's, it's super interesting. And it is based on the idea that, that is, that's a, a way of getting at how connected distant brain regions are to each other. Because if the, if the ripples are complicated, it's, it's meaning that brain regions are talking to each other in non-trivial ways compared to if you just get a, a simple ripple. So it is a good reason for, for using it. In systematic experiments, it seems to behave in very interesting and illuminating ways. Like you can use it, for instance, on people in the so-called vegetative state, uh, where they may appear on the outside while they still go through sleep-wake cycles. There doesn't seem to be any conscious self at home. They don't display any voluntary behavior or respond to any stimuli or commands. And there's long been a question in, in neurology whether patients in this state are conscious but just unable to express their remaining residual awareness and tools like the pci have been very informative in diagnosing this form of residual consciousness um, so it is really really useful the issue is that it's a bit hard to do on a on a regular basis in an operating theater context because you need this whole tms gear and stimulating the brain is not something that you're going to do all the time for everyone but but as these techniques develop i think we will i mean hopefully we'll get some variant of that that doesn't require the actual stimulation that will be reliable enough to work and then be trusted by people who are who are doing the surgery yeah before we leave the um or just uh, to complete i was a surgeon um and the the idea of the monitoring was um you uh, you want enough notice that the consciousness is coming back, if you will, so that you can make adjustments. You can either give more anesthesia or reverse the paralytic agent. Um, so we would need a measurement that said, okay, the patient isn't conscious yet, but consciousness is coming back. Is that a fair way to think of it? Or is I know that um, you talked about it at the beginning that that measurement always starts, uh, you know, in a binary manner. Um, is it on or is it off? But is there a, a threshold to consciousness that we will be able to at some point say, okay, this is where consciousness kicks in and somebody knows that they're paralyzed? Um, or is that, are, are we not understanding it well when we're doing the practical surgical aspect? Um, I think there might be it, it all depends so so this is this actually gets brings us to this sort of more philosophical aspect of measurement as well right? you know, when we there are some things in the world for which we we can come up with definite numbers on a scale that have meaning like the boiling point of water the freezing point of water absolute zero these mark out on a well-defined scale grounded in physics what how systems behave and what properties they have at particular points on that scale and for our understanding of heat measurement turned out not merely to be a, a useful practical tool but absolutely key to understanding what heat was it was this thing that could be reduced to another thing to mean molecular kinetic energy along a single scale now 
I think it's it's still, I guess, in principle, an open question whether consciousness turns out to be something like this or not. Um, but I think it's rather unlikely. And and in the book, I talk a lot about how you know, we should maybe think about consciousness as more analogous to life than to temperature. It's something that's got many different properties that are instantiated in different ways and different people and different species. Um, and nobody measures the amount of life an organism has. I mean, we may, we may have some intuition that a mammal is more alive than a virus um, and an insect may be somewhere in the middle, but no one would sensibly say, well, it's 4.6 versus 1.8, right? We don't understand life in that way, even though measurement can be useful. We can measure things related to life. So I think consciousness is going to turn out to be more like that. Um, but in terms of the practical situation in the OR, I think it's possible for individuals to sort of figure out, okay, is this, is there roughly a threshold at which this measure tends to mark the boundary between unconscious and conscious states? Um, of course, as you also said, it may not be a binary phenomenon. I mean, there, there are extremes where we've lost consciousness and regain it, but you'll know as, as surgeons as well, that there's, there's this middle ground, there's this hypnopompic and hypnagogic states, this, this sort of gray zone between loss of consciousness and full consciousness. Um, so it may well make sense to to have a continuous measurement, perhaps with a sort of inflection point somewhere near the transition. Uh, but what I think will be most useful for these sorts of measures is not coming up with a specific number, but whether they track alterations in consciousness sufficiently so that you can look at the direction of travel. And if I can imagine if you're in the OR and you see, oh, you know, the brain complexity measure is stable and then it starts going up and then you think okay well i just need to keep an eye on that and maybe you 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 respond to it with in whatever way without worrying too much about whether as a specific threshold is crossed or not is this granular enough at this point where you could tell someone's maybe about to fall asleep just on their own um, maybe losing focus like one of your students in class for example i mean it, the reason i ask i read this article maybe a few years ago in the wall street journal where in china they were testing I don't think it was transcranial stimulation. It was something else. It was probably not something that's valid, but they had these monitors on these kids' heads in elementary school, and the parents would get reports of when they were losing focus in class, which is just about as creepy as I can imagine, but, and, and probably not valid yet. But if we flip it around from the patient to the surgeon, we all know some surgeons, they work very long hours. They got called into the ER the night before. They're tired. They're not you know, if you're having surgery, Adel, you want the surgeon who got a good night's sleep before, right? If, if not anything else. Um, for all the jobs that require focus, could you see a tool like this being valid in that one day and alerting someone that this is not a good time to operate a vehicle, this is not a good time to begin this case? I think you pointed out both the dark side and the light side of, of technologies like this, um, with the example of monitoring your children in school. Um, we all know that when you know, a measure becomes a benchmark, it ceases to be a good measure, and 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 it's it, it's and there's there's enormous ethical worries about monitoring people's levels of of attention, alertness, and arousal, especially if they're not that accurate yet. You might you might end up yeah. disrupting things. Um, on the other hand, you're absolutely right, and it is it is quite terrifying that for some of the professions like like yours in medicine where we put the most faith in an individual's ability to exercise complex cognitive and manually dexterous tasks uh 
to have these people working so hard, they're often in a fairly non-rested state, to put it kindly, is a bit nuts. And, and, you know, there's so many issues to address here, and I'm not best placed to address them, but the sort of whole culture of, of medical training has been about, as far as I understand, driving people so hard you know, that, that, that they sort of break through. And it's part of almost a rite of passage thing. And, and I think that's so unfortunate that it, I think it's undeniable that getting enough sleep is essential for maintaining our ability to to respond appropriately, flexibly, deploy our cognitive and, and, and physical, physiological resources properly. Um, whether that can be monitored, whether we have like not only the patient with a headset on, but the surgeon too, <laughs> uh, that's, that's something I, I, hadn't, I hadn't considered. I, I do think it's worthwhile though. I mean, you, I, I, you see this now in things like, um, I think long distance drivers, there's even uh, technologies now where, where auto manufacturers car manufacturers are embedding electrical sensors in the seats driving seats like near the, near the headrest and trying to infer okay is the driver about to fall asleep has what are there, are there signs of it and back to the original question i think there are interesting signatures of this middle ground between wake and sleep my friend and colleague at cambridge tristan beckenstein has done really pioneering work about the transition between waking and sleeping um, this period of drowsiness, the neuroscience of drowsiness. And the, there's so much complexity here. It's absolutely fascinating. It's not, the, the brain doesn't shut off all at once. Different parts of the brain might kind of quieten down at different times. Um, there's this phenomenon called local sleep where you can have bits of the brain that, that fall into states of slow wave sleep. Um, and the rest of the brain is, is, still ongoing and the, the person as a whole still seems to be awake even though part of their brain is physiologically asleep and you can imagine depending on which bit of the brain that is that could be very problematic for whatever task that person uh, is doing and Tristan and, and his colleagues have done these amazing studies where they get people to do uh, tasks like classify words as being this is an animal this is a not an animal this is an animal and by pressing, by pressing buttons, left for animal, right for not animal. And then they fall asleep while they do this. It's kind of boring experiment anyway, so you might fall asleep. But he's got them to a stage where they, they are expected to fall asleep. And the, the fascinating thing there, Sid Quida did some of the earliest research on this in Paris, is that the body stops responding because as soon as you enter sort of slow wave sleep, you your body stops moving that that's part of the basic physiology of your sleep onset but um your brain doesn't necessarily stop engaging with the environment at the same time so uh he was observing that the brain was sort of preparing the right motor responses to answer these questions even though the person was asleep so you have all these all these complex boundaries where some things you know, not everything just turns off in a binary way or not everything turns off at once it's, it's fascinating it's fascinating Wow. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I do crossword puzzles uh, at, at sleep time. And if I'm really sleepy, <clears throat> excuse me, I can see um, how I've filled in the grids and the, the letters may be poorly written. But when I go back, if I haven't finished the puzzle, I go back and, and it's like that. I can finish it right away. So clearly, my brain is still working on the puzzle, even if my hand is not being able to write in. So that's, a, that's an interesting thing. So maybe yeah, we that, don't that's need... A I mean, that's a whole other area, right? What, what, is, what is sleep for and, and what, what's your brain doing? And of course, that's going to be different from the slow wave sleep where you typically aren't dreaming or have very simple 
mental content and then your dreams, um, which are usually during rapid eye movement sleep, but not exclusively. And um, again, there's a fascinating experiment coming out of Giulio Tononi's lab in Wisconsin. This is now like quite a while ago where they had people um, learn to play some, some game, some, I think it was Tetris, whatever, well, I can't remember, or, or do some manually dexterous task with one hand during the day. And then when they went to sleep, um, their brain activity was monitored using EEG. And what you saw was an increase in slow wave sleep activity over the motor cortex contralateral to the hand on the other side, which is that part of the brain that controls that, that hand because it's the opposite side. Um, so there was a very specific relationship between what the brain was doing during slow wave sleep and what had been happening, what had been learning, what learning had been going on in, in the previous day. Uh, and I think sleep is a very, very active process. It's not just the brain having a rest. Actually, just personally, how do you think about your own sleep? Um, do you think about it a lot? I mean, you're a busy guy. Um, if you don't mind, I'm just curious. No, no, I think it's, 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 a good, it's, a, it's a good time to reflect on that because you're right. And I guess pre-pandemic, I was, I was not doing too well by any measure of sleep quality or consistency, partly because of an almost continuous state of jet lag and, and being just you know hammering things at, at all ends and, and not getting enough sleep, knowing I should get more, but still managing to get by. So during the, the pandemic, I was, I was definitely getting a lot more regular sleep. And that I think was, was really beneficial. And for the, for the first time, I was, I, was, I was just finding it easier to go to sleep uh, at, when I was going to bed. Um, there was just a much more regular rhythm to it. And I, I really noticed, because I have taken one international flight, well, one long haul flight, uh, last November, I, I was in I was in New York for a while, and the jet lag hit me like a truck because uh, I just hadn't had a, that disruption to my sleep patterns for, for so long. Um, and in the last three months or so, so I actually caught COVID right at the tail end of the Delta wave, and unfortunately, it developed into what people have been calling long COVID. So I've got these sort of persistent symptoms. One of the things I've been really trying to do is is sleep rest as much as possible there's no sort of well accepted other treatments for this the only thing everybody does seem to agree on is is rest as much as possible so i've been prioritizing quality sleep uh, even more over the last last three months and i think looking ahead i'm certainly gonna be looking after my sleep patterns better than i was before all this yeah, we appreciate you coming on because uh, we delayed it a, a few times to make sure you had plenty of time to recover. And, and here I am today coughing my, my lungs out because my, my daughter number two gave me a cold. But uh, <laughs> I guess that's now that we're shifting from COVID and back into normalcy, we're back to colds and flus. Oh, I don't know. We are. I mean, this is the crazy thing that, that there's, I don't know, in the, in the States, but in the UK, we've got record high infection rates. And you know, we're recording this in the first day of April in 2022. And, and there's there's just it's, yeah, it's record high infection rates which is exactly the day that the government have decided to stop making tests freely available which seems well, that's strange. a fair point it's 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 not done it's uh well it's like consciousness we don't know how close we're we are far away we are from something else but <laughs> right. hey, speaking of that so I, th I think it would be helpful for a moment um and i think 
for those listening, listening to your TED talk, and of course, reading your book is the best way to flesh out this argument. But as, as quickly as we can, basically as we can, tell us what your definition of consciousness is, how you think about it today, and what you mean by consciousness is a hallucination. I think some people listening will think consciousness is an illusion. That's not really what you're saying. It's hallucination. Give us, give us an idea just so everybody's okay. somewhat up uh, to speed here. Just to, just to like put it out there and then I'll come back to it. I don't think either hallucination or illusion are really the right words. Um, and that's part of the challenge and, and part of the reason that, that we have to dig underneath words and to try and come up with a more formal mathematical thing. Anyway, um, but to just to define consciousness, definitions always evolve too. I don't think there is a rigorous consensus definition that, that's, that is stable that everybody agrees on. It's just the case of let's make sure we're not talking past each other. So by consciousness, I mean any kind of subjective experience whatsoever. Yeah. For, uh, to put it another way, and this is, this is uh, using the words of the philosopher Tom Nagel, for a conscious organism, that is something it is like to be that organism. There's something going on for that organism. And this is a very, very simple, intuitive way to think about it. There's something it's like to be me. There's a sense of the emotion that I'm feeling now, the visual, the stuff I'm looking at. I can hear my own voice, which is always a bit disturbing. Um, and there's something it's like to be you. And there's something it's like to be an, a dog and a monkey. And probably also there's something it's like to be a rat and a mouse. But there are other things for which we look at and we think there is nothing it is like for that thing to exist for itself, a table, a chair. A computer program um, but then we get into some gray areas what about an insect what about a fish what about a very sophisticated computer program that is simulating aspects of the brain is there something going on for that and what do i mean by something going on for that well that's the difference between being awake and aware and general anesthesia when i'm in a state of general anesthesia there is nothing it is like to be me it is oblivion and there's nobody experiencing that oblivion. It is just nothing. And so you could say a table exists in a constant state of general anesthesia by definition of being a table. So that's my definition of consciousness. But I also think back to this idea that consciousness is perhaps best, better analogized with life rather than with heat, that Consciousness is multidimensional and it's going to express in different ways, in different systems, different species and so on. There is a single defining thing, like things are either alive or you know, things are alive or not, but there are different ways to be alive. There are different ways to be conscious. For us, at least, there's you know, this global level of consciousness that we've spoken about with anesthesia and sleep. There's conscious content. What are we conscious of when we are conscious to shape, sound, smells, colors, tastes, emotions, all this stuff? Then there's conscious self, the experience of being an individual, being me, or as the title of the book is, being you. What is it like to be a conscious self? So that's splitting up the definition a little bit, just as life did into things like metabolism and homeostasis and reproduction, the different properties that living systems have. And then comes this idea of, of hallucination or illusion. And this is really my attempt building on the on the work of many, many other scientists and philosophers to try and understand what is the basis of our conscious content and self, the basis, the, the nature of the conscious experiences that we have. 
And I mean, the, oh, the idea goes back as far as you like, back to Plato, at least, and then Kant in philosophy, and then Helmholtz in, in philosophy and psychology. The idea that we never see the world as it really is. Um, all perceptual content is a creative, active interpretation. Um, you know, Kant talks about the noumenon, the, the reality that is inaccessible, unknowable uh, to us. We can only ever experience a, a version of it. What do we mean by a version? And that's where I think it gets interesting. And Helmholtz was the first person to talk about perception being some kind of inference. That We have these sensory signals that come into our eyes and our ears and all our other sensory organs. And perception isn't just a process of reading out information, even though it might seem like that. If I open my eyes, it seems as though the world just pours itself into my mind through the transparent windows of my eyes. But you know, light doesn't, light rays don't come with labels on that I'm from a car or I'm the color red or anything like that. They're just electromagnetic radiation. The brain has to make its best guess about the causes of the sensory signals. It has to interpret them. And this line of thought goes, perception is a kind of inference, best guessing about what causes sensory signals. And the content of what we perceive is this best guess. Now, in the, the more modern way of thinking about this and the, the framework that I develop in the book, it's called predictive coding or predictive processing. And in this framework, what the simplest way to think about it is the brain is always making predictions about what's going on in the world or the body and the sensory signals that come in are mainly there to calibrate these predictions, to keep them tied to the world and the body, um, to minimize. So they, they, they're like prediction error signals and the brain is always trying to minimize the error in its predictions. And by doing that, our perceptual experiences are useful because they're certainly not hallucinations in the sense of being completely unrelated to what's out there in the world or, or like made up and i'm not saying that reality is a figment of the mind or anything like that but our perceptual experiences in a in a very important conceptual sense come from within they come from the inside out and they're controlled by sensory signals so i like to think of sensory signals as some sort of like reins you know they're, they're keeping our perceptions tied to to reality going in a certain direction and importantly, this doesn't necessarily mean they're the most accurate depiction of the world. Evolution didn't design our perceptual systems to maximize the amount of accurate information that we perceive about environment. They designed our perceptual systems to perceive the world in the, the most useful way to help us survive and reproduce. Um, so there are indirect relations between what we perceive and what's there even though it seems like what we perceive really is what's there, it is indirect. So that's why I use the term controlled hallucination, which I first heard from Chris Frith, a British psychologist. But what often gets left out is the control is just as important as the hallucination here. If you lose the control, then you have what we normally think of as hallucination. People will see and hear things that other people don't, that really have no relation to what's out there in the world. The hallucination is just to emphasize that we never see things as they are. They are an active construction, a creative, active interpretation. So um, there's a, a few things that, that questions pop into my mind arising. That The first one is we talk about the general anesthesia state where we've cut up out the connection of the brain, presumably to other parts of the body. But 
according to the sort of predictive coding um, theory or your, your work, the brain is still active. It's still predicting things. So what is the brain doing? I, I guess it, there's no way to tell because the brain is just in this dark space without content. But does the brain shut down during anesthesia or is it still running around predicting the world is going on this way? It's just nobody can hear it. I think that that's a very interesting and I think rather open empirical question. So this this whole principle of predictive coding is not it's not to say that it's the necessary or sufficient basis for for consciousness. Not every every part of the brain that's doing prediction error minimization is necessary underlying particular kinds of conscious experience. And it may be that some aspects of conscious experience don't rely on this. I, I use it as a way to try and understand the relationship between what's happening in the brain and what particular kinds of conscious experiences are like. Like what, why do visual experiences have the character that they do? Well, it can be understood, I think, quite well in terms of specific kinds of predictions that the brain is making about the causes of sensory data. What's happening in general anesthesia? I, you, it's, it's incredibly hard to tell because you can't, um, I mean, you can look at global patterns of activity you know just how the how the sort of ongoing what you might call resting state dynamics are but it's very hard to actually see what the how the brain is responding to stimuli because most stimuli don't really get into the brain certainly you know, the eyes are usually closed and certain things you can still sounds will get in so you can look at the brain response um to to sounds the general story is that for people um, in anesthesia, it seems that you still get local processing of sensory information. So you might get activity in, in the lowest levels of cortical hierarchies devoted to the different modalities, sight, sound, so on, but they don't propagate further in the brain. And so you don't get these brain-wide patterns of counterflowing bottom-up and top-down activity that characterize our conscious waking state. And um, the other direction, uh, unless Colin wants to follow up on that, was the concept of the controlled hallucination. Um, as we're sort of working at that and saying, okay, this is, uh, there is control over it, <clears throat> but there is an opposite. There's the uncontrolled hallucination. It, will we ever reach a point? Are we heading towards a point where we understand what that control is so that we could use that to uh, to in some ways in a therapeutic manner can we can we address people who are having uncontrolled hallucinations and say well here's the biologic basis of control let's give you that and see if we get things under right so the control is is in my view it's, it's coming from the world or the body it's not control in the sense of like a little mini me uh pulling the strings inside my, my brain making me right. have this kind of perception rather than that our perceptual inferences are, are controlled by the sensory information coming from the world. Um, that's sort of the sense I, I'm using it. Uh, can we use this concept therapeutically? I, th I think the answer is yes. In fact, some of the, the most influential work in this tradition from Chris Frith and also the psychiatrist Paul Fletcher was about its how it sheds light on uh, psychosis on perceptual hallucinations and also mm -hmm. cognitive delusions in states of, of psychosis and 
the you know the rough idea there was was pretty much as we've been saying that if for some reason and we don't know what the underlying etiologies and causes might be but if for some reason your perceptual predictions become less controlled by less reined in by the, the sensory signals then they might start to become untethered from the usual causes in the world and the body and that would lead to people perceiving things that others don't and the the, the that story then evolves into an account of delusions why is it that in psychosis people not only perceive things unusually and hear voices in their heads and so on but come to believe very very weird things like being controlled by the cia or the tv or something like that and this the i think it's still really the level of a of a narrative framework for this rather than something that's really substantiated in in data that that if the brain is trying to always minimize prediction error error and account for the data that's getting if these lower levels of perceptual experience have gone awry so that there are things there's a there's a voice in the head that doesn't seem to be coming from anywhere um well then in order to account for that the higher levels of belief have to change as well so they have to make sense of this these unusual perceptions somehow and they make sense of it by altering this higher level cognitive framing they're like oh the reason i have voices in my head is because they're being projected into my brain from wherever from 5g transmitters or something um and so there's there's an overall story, but the challenge now is to get a bit more fine grained about that because just saying that, yeah, you know, it's it's helpful therapeutically already just to sort of be able to explain what's going on and that you no, know, it's not that everything is, you know, it's not that you're crazy. So it's just that there's this almost quite a specific thing that, that that's likely to be happening. Um, one of the next steps, and this is something that, uh, yeah, well, there's two sort of next steps really. So in in a lot of work. Uh, Phil call it a Yale comes to mind. He's done some really interesting neuroimaging work looking at people who have um, psychosis or otherwise experience uh, visions or voices. Because a lot of people, of course, who experience hear voices who aren't psychotic. They're not distressing. They're, they're just that's just part of their lives. And it's often been rather stigmatized and it shouldn't be um, not all unusual forms of perception are a form of mental illness they're just reflective of perceptual diversity um but certainly there there are there are brain imaging studies that show that in fact there are the sorts of differences you would expect for people who experience hallucinations compared to those who don't in terms of top down bottom up activity and, and so on one of the things that we're doing with my group at sussex is trying to build computational models of this process to try and simulate different kinds of hallucinations to get a much more fine-grained grip on what really drives differences in, in, in conditions that involve hallucinations. And here we can contrast things like um, uh, psychosis and schizophrenia with other conditions like um, Parkinson's disease and, and Lewy body dementia, where people also often have visual hallucinations and Charles Bonnet syndrome, where people have visual hallucinations, but they know they're, they're, that their experiences are not real. There's a very interesting difference. They will see things, and these things will have the property of being perceptually very vivid, but they're not confused about what's real and what's not in the same way that people with severe psychosis can be confused. So 
I think we're at the stage now where we can start building computational models of the differences between these different expressions of something which is often just lumped together under the general term of, of hallucinations. And the more fine-grained we can get about the mechanisms, of course, that's one step on the way to thinking about treatments, whether they're pharmacological interventions or whether they're more like feedback training where you get people to sort of train up their perceptual processes in, in different ways, um, which I think there's, you know, there's some interest in doing that too. Could these models include ideology and what probably the three of us would agree are bad ideas like the earth is flat or, you know, JFK was, you know, killed by a person from Mars or something like that. I mean, it, you know, I guess what I'm getting at is there's some ideas, take even free will, Keith and I were talking about this before you jumped on. I want to believe in free will because I'm a parent, if not anything else. I want to believe that we're responsible for our actions. But I've read enough of your work and others out there that, I mean, heck, even Charles Whitman, you talked about this guy, you know, he, he was this, you know, a, a mass murderer many years ago, University of Texas, um, had no prior reason to think he would ever do something like this. And they later on, you know, found out he had a brain tumor. And that's what's thought to have some effect there. Um, <clears throat> How do you think about that when I, I look at the brain, the way you paint it, the way others like Alison Gottnick paint it, it's a, it's a curiosity, experience the world, testing hypotheses, building models. It's, a, it's a, it evolved to do that. But somehow we get these ideas in our head and we just can't get rid of them. Even very smart people who don't have any, what we would consider pathologies. Could that be included in that research? I think so. Well, you raised free will and then dodged back to the original question, which is quite, quite a good idea. Sorry. There's a, oh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about when it comes Sorry to free will. Um, but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a very hard thing to put to the experimental test, but it, make, it makes perfect sense. And you see these sorts of patterns. I mean, there was, I think it was only just yesterday I was reading that um, you know, this big, big and wholly unnecessary study about the efficacy of ivermectin in treating COVID-19 came out showing it just didn't work. And you know, why, why, why do we need this study in the first place? What narrative was it based on? It was based on people coming to believe that it did work because you know, that narrative fit with a whole bunch of other beliefs that people who believed that also held. Um, and now, of course, the response to this study has been for people who already did not think there was any efficacy of ivermectin, well, look at it and say, well, of course not. We knew it wasn't going to work and it hasn't worked. But there's a counter narrative, which is saying, oh, no, you know, they, the study designers didn't want it to work. And this is why it hasn't worked. And it's blah, blah, blah. So it comes back to this point that the brain you know, likes closure. And, and it also emphasizes the point that a lot of the sources of you, we can ask the question, like, where do our predictions come from? Now, if, if what we perceive and what we experience is based on the brain making predictions about causes of data, where do these come from? Well, some of them are based on that, the basic wiring of the brain. We all have inbuilt into our visual systems the prediction that light generally comes from above and that helps us interpret uh, surfaces under shadow. We don't know we, our brain encodes this. That's just the way our visual system works. And it's useful and probably everybody shares that. Uh, but then you know, other sources of prediction come from our lifetime experiences and still others come from our social and cultural environment. And you know, they're not going to necessarily change how we see shadows on, on surfaces, but they may well change how we frame and interpret other, other things. And, and, and again, the, the key thing that, and this is not, you know, this is getting way out of my wheelhouse, but I think it's a, it, 
the, our mind and brain just really tends towards consistency. And so long as the beliefs that we hold are mutually consistent, that seems to be much more important than whether they're actually right or not. Well, like what you said, it's looking for closure too. Yeah. Like wanting an ending to a story or something, you know, maybe brain says, okay, I got that. I'm done. Move on to the next thing. I don't want to question that again. Yeah. Um, yeah we all find it hard to change our minds. And I think there's another, I keep sort of, I can't help name checking many of my brilliant colleagues, but my friend Steve Fleming has done great work on, you know, what it takes to change our minds and how much evidence do we need to be persuaded in order to, to actually alter our opinions or beliefs about, about something. And I think that's fascinating. There's certainly this kind of belief momentum that, that it takes much more evidence than it should. And of course, this applies, this applies to you and me too. I, you know, I can be very confident about my thoughts and I will probably remain confident about my wrong theories about consciousness, even in the face of too much evidence. Well, in, in your book, you talk about the uh, creature that has the primitive brain and it gets to a point where it has everything it needs and then it gets rid of the brain because it doesn't need it anymore. I suppose it's conceivable once you have the answer to your own ideology, you just shut down that pathway because you don't need another answer. You, you, it, this is settled. I don't have to learn more. It could be. This actually is a beautiful opportunity to, to just mention one. One of the unexpected delights of writing a book is that firstly is that people actually read it which is amazing i don't think you know as an author sort of i, I never really think people are necessarily going to read stuff and of course they read it and they'll send comments and so this this there's this story which is in a footnote in the book and it's a beautiful story of a very simple organism a tunicate uh, a sea squirt and the story that i'd heard and usually told is that in its juvenile stage this this little animal swims about with a very simple brain until it finds a suitable lump of rock on which to settle down and spend the rest of its life filter feeding on, on whatever drifts by, um, plankton and so on. And at this point, so the story goes, it digests its own brain because it no longer needs it. It's found where it's going to settle and that's that. And this is often used unkindly as an, an analogy for getting a permanent job in an academic system. Once you found your, <laughs> once you found your job, you can, <laughs> only your graduate students need brains. Um, <laughs> Now, fortunately for me, as someone who's got a job, this story turns out to not be true. And I, I didn't know this, but, but somebody who'd read my book then emailed me and said, oh, God, not this old story about the sea squirt again, and sent me some papers from the Canadian Journal of Zoology um, that describe in, in great detail the life cycle of the tunicate organism. And so I, I wanted to I have the opportunity to update the footnote for the paperback version. Oh, too bad. It's Actually, such a great metaphor to use, but no, but it's even it. better. I think it's so that, that what happens is the um the the juvenile brain does get ingested by the organism when it settles, but the adult grows a new and bigger brain that is oh. better suited to its to its environment. Now, I, I'm actually quite pleased with this, not only because it justifies me having an academic position, um, but also because one of the, the main threads of, of the book is that the fundamental role of having a brain, the reason why evolution gave us brains, was not to perceive the world around us or to engage in complex abstract thinking or anything like that. It's to keep the body alive, to regulate and maintain the body in a, in a homeostatically viable state. And so for me, it was a little problematic, problematic that an organism 
could just get rid of a brain, his brain entirely. Now, there are some organisms that don't have brains like jellyfish. They have nerve nets and things. Um, and this, and that, this example was, you know, many people use it to argue that we need brains primarily for movement. And if we're not moving around, we don't need a brain. Now, I think there's a lot to that. A lot of our brains across many species help us behave actively, behave actively in the environment but not all of it. So there's part of me that was a little bit relieved to find out that indeed this organism does continue to have a brain, even though it's not moving. Well, you're also willing to update your thinking, which uh, <laughs> says something about you uh, and everybody's willing to do that. But so we're getting close to the time here. I wanted to ask you one question here before we, we run out of time. So you, back to your book, you talked about getting a traffic ticket, I believe outside of San Diego at one point. And you, are, you made an argument that you shouldn't be we shouldn't have gotten the ticket, but you shouldn't be responsible, basically because of where the, the sign was placed. I want, I want you to tell the story very quickly and what, what you did to argue your point. But the reason I ask is if we look in the news lately here in the United States, um, <clears throat> just this week, a nurse at Vanderbilt University, she was charged for a medication error that led to the death of a patient. And all week long, I've been hearing people talk about this in the hospitals. It's, it's very concerning for a lot of reasons. Um, but prior to that, there was a police officer who shot a suspect. During the video, she yelled out taser and then pulled out her weapon instead. Um, my point's not to dig apart these. I mean, the three of us don't know any more about them than what we read in the news, but this is important. It shows it's important. Human beings make mistakes. Sometimes uh, everything we've talked about and everything you've written about, we have to prioritize certain information over others. We may miss things like a, a, a stop sign or something. So tell us about that story and I'm curious, Anil, if you were asked to be an expert witness during a court case, just for a traffic citation, what tools do you have right now to prepare for that? How, how would you argue your point? And are we at a point where you could convince a judge? You weren't in this case, I think, but you know, are we getting closer to that? Does that, story, that, that question make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I mean, the, so my example is, is horrifically lightweight and trivial compared to the cases you're, you're describing. And I should also say that I was not successful in, in persuading the judge with the force of neuroscience um, in this instance. I'm not sure I'd be any more successful now. The key point that I was trying to make, though, and that I think applies in these cases, too, is that it's not just that we can make mistakes. Yes, we can make mistakes, but our perceptual systems can make mistakes without, you know, they, without us as individuals making a rational cognitive error. So it's usually taken as a sort of given that you know, if it was if something was there in plain view, we see it, we're going to see it more or less accurately. You know, we're going to recognize that we're holding a taser rather than a, a gun rather than a taser or something like that. Uh, if we're facing a suspect, we will know that they're holding a hammer rather than a gun or something. But but actually, our perceptual systems can be. Can be so. To, in, in different ways one thing we don't know is how individually variable this is and this is actually a study we're trying to do at sussex at the moment to what extent are people's perceptual experiences shaped by the larger context they're in and the beliefs they have uh, some people may literally see things differently than other people and i think that's an important thing to recognize how exactly that interfaces with the with legal issues is very hard it's, it's, it's just as hard in the case of free will that you mentioned earlier it's complicated. It's not black and white. We don't not have it or do have it. You know, we have degrees of it. We have degrees of freedom, as I, as I say in the book. Um, 
And we have degrees of perceptual veridicality as well. And they may differ between people. But anyway, yes. So I was in north of San Diego going to, uh, I think it was 11th Avenue of Del Mar, which is a little town north of San Diego. And I'd I go on the 101 and I take a, a left. I've been living in San Diego for now like six years or something. And there's this little left turn down to the ocean where I would go surfing. And one day I just go there. I turn left and you know wait for the cars it's like a, it's a thing and i wait for the turn left and and then i get pulled over and there's a couple of cops there and they're just they're pulling over like hundred loads of people there's like i don't know at least six other cars pulled up when i'm there and we all get tickets for making a left turn on a no left and i'm just like because I, I didn't even know i'd done it and i was like what, what's wrong you know is it about if i got a flat or something he said no you've, you've made this thing you get a ticket and i said there's no sign there and he said yeah no it's been there for like three weeks there is a sign I just didn't didn't see it so of course I get the ticket and I think I'm going to challenge this because it's really annoying and um, I make several appeals they all get denied uh, but you have the you know because the USA has this incredible you can take your court you can take your case further so I go I, I, I apply to get my case heard at a traffic court um, somewhere in, in Southern California I forget exactly where now and on the day I go prepared with a little presentation explaining the phenomenon of change blindness. And the phenomenon of change blindness is, I think, really important in perception. When our environment changes slowly and we're not expecting or attending to those changes, or when something in it changes kind of quickly and you're not looking at the moment that it changed, we can very easily not perceive the change not recognize either the change itself or the thing that has changed. And this is well documented in, in psychology. It's a fascinating phenomenon. The degree of things we can miss is insane. So these some of my favorite demonstrations show so many things changing in a scene. And then you ask people afterwards and they haven't seen any of them. Um, so my case was I, it was the information was available to my eyes, but I did not perceive it. And that was not my fault. It was because of change uh, blindness. And the sign, the fact that the sign was in plain view did not mean that I'd seen it. And because you know, the, the cop had always said, look, it's right in front of you. You can see it. It's no excuse. You saw the sign. I said, I didn't see the sign. And here's why. Um, so that was the case that I made in, in traffic court, which, was, which wasn't an idea. You know, I stood up. I was able to make you know, 10 minutes or something. Um, but it turns out that in traffic court, whether you get a ticket or not, whether you get a ticket dismissed or not, at least then, this was in 2006 or something, turn out to depend entirely on whether the officer who gave you the ticket can be bothered to turn up or not. In this case, he turned up. He said, yeah, he turned left on a no left. Judge said, you get the ticket. Well, maybe the justice, justice system isn't interested, but maybe insurance companies will hire you for uh, <laughs> an advisory role at some point. Um, we're at the end of the time here. I was going to ask one last question. Keith, is there anything else? No, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. So I don't, we, we all recognize if we're, if we're being realistic about this, the progress of science is slow and methodical, but every once in a while you get something that's kind of a leap forward, like a microscope or a telescope or a particle accelerator or something. Right now, the big excitement's this James Webb telescope that's just made it into place. And I think we're at a point in history where we know, we don't know what we're going to find with this, but it's very exciting. This is, a, this is a leap forward in technology and abilities to explore the universe around us, right? 
my question to finish things up with, do you see anything like this coming up that would be such a powerful tool, assuming you had the, the, the resources or funding? Maybe not. But what gets you most excited about the next 20, 30 years in neuroscience? I wish we had something like the James Webb in the study of consciousness. Um, and here's where I might finish a little with a little bit of humility, maybe a little bit of a downer, really. I think I think that I mean, I do feel extremely lucky to be able to spend my my time and, and have a job which involves thinking about and researching one of the most fascinating questions I think there is consciousness. How does it happen? What, what does it mean to be me? These are questions that have animated scientists and philosophers for thousands of years. And we each have it individually as well. It matters to each of us. What is it like to be me? Do I have free will? What happens when I die? And it's a real privilege. And it's a, it's not always been possible. So for a long period in psychology, neuroscience, there was still work in consciousness going on. People were still doing fantastic experiments in clinical populations with split brain patients and blind sight patients and so on. Um, but it was something that when you're studying it, you were strongly dissuaded from, from focusing on it. You know, it was, you'll, never, you'll never get a job, you'll never get funding, you'll never make progress. Um, it's this philosophically perplexing black hole of a, of a mystery now that's changed and there's a lot of activity in fact the pendulum may have swung a bit too much the other direction there's a lot of publicity around consciousness research and in a, in a way this is good it's attracting a lot of smart young people into the field and there is progress as you said i, I wish it was method a lot um sort of methodical it's may, maybe not even that it's a bit unpredictable but there is progress if i look back over the 20 odd years that i've been involved a lot more is known. There's been no eureka moment, no sort of dramatic single discovery, but a lot more is known about a very complex phenomenon. And I'm confident that a lot more will be discovered, but I don't necessarily see it. I don't see a big James Webb or Einstein moment. You know, James Webb's a extraordinary feat of technology and experiment and Einstein massive theoretical insight you can never rule that out I mean that that can just take one brilliant brain that can see things other people can't uh, or 10 billion dollars or well that would be the James Webb example what would yeah. be the equivalent the equivalent in neuroscience would be the kind of brain imaging technology that is able to record both in high spatial resolution in high time resolution and with global coverage all at the same time now Current imaging technology is marvelous. It's a miracle to be able to look inside the living human brain at all. But we're very far off from that kind of technology that can combine all these three. We can typically get one or two together at best, um, but all three not. If there were a technology that could do that, that might be our James Webb moment. But I don't see anything quite like that on the horizon. I see incremental improvement of our imaging methods nothing that's going to change the game in that fundamental way so it's going to continue i think to be hopefully a bit more systematic and methodical there's a lot of emphasis on experimental rigor and actually testing uh trying to disambiguate different theories of consciousness now like what would be the best experiment that actually uh, decides between different theories so i think we will continue to see progress and i'm excited about that but a little less confident that we'll have a eureka moment I figure as much. That was an NPR kind of closing question, but I just had to do it. <laughs> Donald, we got to let you go because um, I know you're, you're backed up on a lot of things 
with um, the long COVID and time out, but really appreciate you coming on. And I want to thank you. I mean, I really, really love this book. Oh, thank um, you. Thanks for bringing it into the world. This was, <laughs> and I've read a lot of stuff like this, but you're a very good writer and it, it's, it's helped. I want to say clarify my thinking. It's certainly informed my thinking on this. And I think an hour spent with you is not enough. This one, I really recommend to everybody listening. So as always, we're going to put that up in the show notes, links to your website. Close out, is there anywhere you'd like to point people to your research website? Um, sure, else? yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm really glad you, you enjoyed the book as well. It really does mean a lot. Every single person that, that has read it and enjoyed it, that, that may, means the world to me. Um, yes, if people want to, want to follow up on things and find out more about the book or about my research in general, uh, the easiest place is just to go straight to my website, which is www.anilseth.com. And one of the things people might find there, besides the research and the book, is this new art science project that I'm super excited about that's launching in the UK next month, in May now. Um, it's called Dream Machine, and it's a very large-scale series of immersive, collective immersive experiences where through the power of flashing light and music, we induce people to have extraordinary, vivid, visual and emotional experiences together. <laughs> and this is, um, you know, nothing like this has really been tried before. I, I, I think we're, we're hoping to get tens of thousands of people through this over the coming months. And as part of it, there's also going to be a large scale online experiment called the Perception Census. We've talked a bit today about the diversity of perception that we don't all see the world the same way. But really, we don't know much about this diversity. It's, it's unlike diversity we can see on the outside. You know, people have different skin colors, different heights. We can't experience other people's experiences directly. So a lot of our inner diversity, I think, has remained unmapped and hidden. And the perception census is one of the first large-scale systematic attempts to get a handle on how we each experience the world and ourselves in our unique, personalized way and recognize the value, not that some ways are better or worse, but just recognize there is value in diversity, but we need to understand more about it. And so I'd encourage people, it's not up yet, but it will be up sometime in May or June to uh, participate. They're supposed to be a series of fun and engaging online experiments that will really help us understand more about this, this big dark matter of how different our perceptual experiences really are. Fantastic. We'll put links up to all of that. Um... And the dream machine, don't keep that uh, stingy just to the UK. Bring it over here. I'd, I'd try it. <laughs> I'd love amazing. to. I, I, actually, I looked it up uh, before the, uh, the episode. Very, very interesting. But um, yeah, we're past time. So um, Arnold, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for covering out some time. Glad you're feeling better too. And uh, wish you the best of luck as you get back on, on uh, the work schedule here. And um, it's Friday, late Friday for you. It's the end of the day. So um, enjoy the weekend. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Everybody listening, again, that is Professor Arnold Seth at Sussex University in, in the UK. And um, his new book is Being You, The New Science of Consciousness. It's everywhere, bookstores, Amazon, all that. And whenever, wherever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.